Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. Welcome to a special festive edition of Naked Oceans. This month we're taking our pick of the coolest species in the oceans and offering up our 12 critters of Christmas, including some that are distinctly seasonal. You know, they have these transparent bodies and these giant wings. They look a lot like angels. Some that are really quite beautiful. And their shells are really very beautiful, very intricate uh, designs. They can be pillbox shapes and needles or even stars. And some that are just downright weird. The males actually have a retractable sex organ on their head. To my knowledge, I don't know if anyone's actually seen it in use, but um, it is something that sort of slightly boggles my mind. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and here to help me give a rundown of the 12 Critters of Christmas is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hi, Sarah. Hello! We'll also meet an ocean migrant that could give Father Christmas a helping hand, and we'll venture into the deep sea to track down a fish that glows just as brightly as Rudolph's nose. If you've got any questions for us, do get in touch. You can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. Well, we've been having a hunt through the oceans for some of the most awesome critters and we're very pleased to bring you our selection of the 12 Critters of Christmas. And what better place to get this seasonal Critterfest started than with an animal that's just about perfect for this time of year. So here's Rob Jennings from the University of Massachusetts with a little-known ocean drifter. So sea angels are a group of snails, basically. They're not two distant relatives of garden snails that you would find on land in, in your backyard. Sea angels have evolved uh, the behavior of living in the water column. Uh, they're born swimming in the ocean, they grow up swimming in the ocean, and they spend all of their lives uh, in the middle of the water, uh, never touching the bottom. They are very beautiful animals. You know, they have these transparent bodies and these giant wings. They look a lot like angels, you know, and in a marine world where we We've named things sea slugs, and we have sea lice, and we have even sea cucumbers. I think it uh, speaks to how beautiful they are that they've inspired the name sea angels. Uh, As far as we know right now, it looks like the marine snails that live on the bottom um, that have that sort of normal snail shell were the first kind to evolve. Uh, and then they evolved so that they could live up in the water column, but they, they brought their shell with them. And over a lot of evolutionary time, there is evolution to, to lose this shell. So sea angels are sort of the result of this evolution, these um, snail-like mollusks, but uh, without a shell anymore. But one of the really interesting things is that in Antarctic waters, Clione Antarctica has uh, developed this evolutionary tactic to sort of make up for the fact that it doesn't have a shell. So if you're swimming in the water column, the shell is is heavy and it it sort of pulls you down, but it also offers you protection. So you can retreat into your shell and then it's very hard for for anyone to eat you. So these sea angels have lost that protective ability, but instead they've evolved, or at least Clione Antarctica has evolved, 
uh, bad-tasting compounds that it synthesizes. So fish and other predators learn very quickly when they take a bite of clione that it's not something that they want for a meal. And uh, this has led to actually a very curious interaction between sea angels and a totally unrelated group of animals, the Hyperiid amphipods. They're sort of distant cousins of shrimp and, and of krill. And these amphipods have learned that if they grab onto a clione and essentially hold it hostage and swim around carrying this, this giant sea angel on its back, that fish and other predators won't eat the amphipod because it's got this bad-tasting clione um, carried along with it. So they sort of abduct clionies and use them as protection, uh, and then we'll let them go after a time so the clione can, can feed and uh, stay alive itself and then grab another clione uh, as soon as they can. Amphipods carrying around nasty-tasting sea angels to keep unwanted predators at bay. That really is quite awesome. That was Rob Jennings from the University of Massachusetts introducing us to the sea angels. They're pretty cool, actually, because I guess when you think of snails, you think of, like, slow-moving things with the shells that you see on land. And then these are beautiful, they're drifting, very, very festive, I like it. Well, next up, we're going to stay in the open ocean, but venture a little deeper, down into the permanent dark of the midnight zone. I went along to the Natural History Museum in London to find out about a fish that puts on a rather stunning display. My name is James McLean and I work as a curator at the Natural History Museum in London. And uh, I've seen many, many weird and wonderful fish, but one of my favourites is a thing called the stoplight loose jaw, which is a, a deep sea fish and it has some very unusual abilities. It's found all around the world in all the main oceans, Pacific and the Atlantic, and uh, it, like many of the fish that live at depths like that, is capable of producing light. Um, it has two different lights on its head, just behind one behind its eye and a bit, one a bit further down its jaw. Um, and one of these is blue, which is not unusual. A lot of the fish and other organisms at that depth use blue light because it travels quite far through the, the water, it travels further than any other kind of light. Um, but the really unusual thing about the stoplight loose jaw is it also has a red light and it's one of only three kinds of fish that can do this. And the unusual thing about it is that um, hardly anything else can see it. Everything's eyes are tuned to blue light. So the red light that's produced by the stoplight loose jaw is pretty much invisible. So it has its own private wavelength of light. And um, we're still not totally sure what it uses it for. It could use it as a, like a torch to sort of shine ahead of it as it's sort of swimming around looking for prey. Or it could even use it to communicate with other stoplight loose jaws. And, of course, everything else would be oblivious. Uh, the thing I, I really like about it is just it, its fearsome appearance. I can remember as a, a small boy seeing pictures of deep sea fish like um, the stoplight loose jaw in books and just thinking well, these maybe huge monsters living in the bottom of the sea. And only recently I found out that they're you know pretty tiny compared to a lot of the, the other things that people know about, like sharks and things. Yeah, they're, they're fairly small. But yeah, they, have the, 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 they look like nightmarish creatures. They have these they have big, huge fangs and uh, the very weird looking so I think that's one of the things that appeals to me about it and I, I quite like the, the mystery of it as well the way that although we can make educated guesses about what it's doing with its lights we're not 100% sure we may never be because it's very very hard to go down to that depth and watch these things behaving naturally so it could be doing things with its lights that we just would never have dreamt of James McLean there giving us the lowdown on the stoplight loose jaw and our second Critter of Christmas. So, Helen, what have we got next? 
Okay, well, in a moment, uh, we're going to be hearing about a record-breaking migrant that goes to great lengths to keep in a perpetual summer. But first, I've got one of my personal favourites, actually. These guys aren't especially Christmassy, but they do have an eye-popping repertoire of party tricks up their tentacles, so I think they'd actually be really fun to have around. So my choice for Christmas critter number three is the Mimic Octopus. Now, these are awesome creatures. They were discovered in 1998 in Indonesia, um, where they live in sandy, silty areas around river mouths. And they've been caught on camera putting on an extraordinary range of impersonations of other animals. They will stick all but two of their arms down a hole and then make the other two stripy and wave them around like a sea snake. Um, They can lay their arms out flat and swim across the seabed like a flatfish. Um, They can wave their arms around their head to make themselves look like a lionfish. Um, And it's thought they also do impressions of things like anemones, stingrays, mantis shrimp and even jellyfish. I mean, that sounds completely mad. I mean, they're amazing creatures. I've seen some videos myself on the internet but do scientists have any idea why they can mimic such a wide range of other species well scaring off and confusing predators seems to be the most likely explanation about why this actually happens because the creatures they mimic tend to be poisonous so they can pretend to be dangerous by co-opting the fearsome reputation of other creatures and that's something that lots of other animals do like non-stinging bees that have evolved to be yellow and black stripy creatures to look like wasps um but the thing about mimic octopus is that it's the only animal that we know of that mimics a whole wide range of other animals and they can switch between them minute by minute and this means that they can tailor their impersonations depending on what's threatening them at any particular time. Well a recent study looked into how the mimic octopus evolved just one of its clever tricks, that flatfish impersonation, and researchers found that it's actually a combination of first evolving the ability to change colour really quickly. This confuses predators, it's almost like shouting at them with colour. Then the mimic octopus ancestors evolved really long arms and figured out at the same time how to wrap them around themselves and uh, make themselves look like a flatfish essentially, then if you combine that with the colourful displays, you have an uncanny impression of a venomous species of flatfish. So that's a really good thing to be if you're a squishy, soft-bodied octopus with nothing else to protect you except your brain. So Paul the Octopus may have become a worldwide celebrity for his weird football-predicting skills, but there are certainly some other really surprising talents to be found in the rest of the octopus world. Well, I guess that just goes to show how sophisticated octopuses are, because I know that they're part of that group where you have to be regulated in order to do experiments on them because they're considered to be very intelligent animals. Um, so, it's yeah, it's really, really impressive. Well, we've reached Christmas critter number four, and I've chosen some gentle giants, the dugongs and their close relatives, the manatees. These are the Cyrenians, which is a group of marine mammals that evolved from four-legged ancestors that took to the sea around 50 million years ago and supposedly were mistaken by sailors for mermaids. Not entirely sure how they managed to do that. Maybe they'd been at sea for a bit too long. Um, But they have a host of adaptations to an aquatic life. They have very dense bones that act as ballast and huge lungs that can take up to two-thirds of their body length, which they use to control their buoyancy. And they've earned themselves a reputation as the dummies of the marine mammal world because their brains are only the size of a cricket ball, which is in fact probably an unfair label because they can be trained to perform similar tasks as their more famously intelligent cousins, the dolphins. It might not be so much that dugongs and manatees have tiny brains, but that they've evolved supersized bodies that keep them warm and provide enough space for a huge stomach to digest all the tough seagrass and vegetation that they eat. 
Now, there are four living Cyrenian species, a single dugong species living in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. There's the West African manatee and the West Indian manatee that lives around the Caribbean, plus a third species that's evolved to tolerate freshwater in the Amazon River. But there have been lots more Cyrenian species in the past. There are around 50 extinct fossil species that we know of, and one of the biggest was Stella's sea cow. That one grew to a gigantic eight metres in length and used to live across the North Pacific until people hunted them to extinction because they were just too tasty and being such slow, docile creatures, they were just too easy to catch. But I guess at least these days, not many people do actually hunt manatees and dugongs, but I guess they do face other threats still, don't they? Yeah, there are loads of problems. Like they can get hit by boats, which can obviously cause them some quite nasty injuries. And there's the problem of habitat loss as well. They eat a lot of seagrass and their other vegetation that's actually really under threat globally. And then last winter, a lot of manatees in Florida died because the temperature absolutely plummeted. And so it seems they're rather sensitive creatures to their environment. But I wonder, Helen, do you know how to tell the difference between a dugong and a manatee? Sounds like a good question for a Christmas uh, cracker or something. Um, is it, it's about their tails, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Manatees have a spoon-shaped tail, while dugongs have fluked tails, a bit more like a dolphin. So if you ever see, if you're ever lucky enough to see one in the wild, you'll be able to tell the difference. So I, I'd love to see one in the wild. They're just such friendly, docile creatures, and it's, it's very sad that they're very under threat. This is Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Caster-Perry. This month we're bringing you a special edition of the show, packed full of great marine life, with our 12 Critters of Christmas. Coming up, we'll be finding out where marine snow comes from. But first, here's Richard Phillips from the British Antarctic Survey with an ocean-going bird that I think could definitely give Father Christmas a helping hand. The Arctic term is a small seabird, weighs something like 100 or 120 grams, and it breeds all throughout the North Atlantic on um, little islands often or occasionally on mainlands. For such a small species, they travel vast distances. They um, make the longest migration of any animal on the planet, all the way from the north to the South Pole and back again. So in total, um, during the non-breeding period, Arctic terns travel upwards of 80,000 kilometres per year. Essentially, the Arctic tern tracks an endless summer, exploiting the productive waters around the breeding colony in the northern summer and then moving down into the Antarctic for the summer there to exploit the high krill abundance. We track them using geolocators, which are little loggers that you put on the bird's leg that record light, and from them you can derive the time of sunset and sunrise, and using astronomical algorithms you can derive latitude from day length and longitude from the time of local noon. Although Arctic terns um, don't interact with any major fisheries, um, the problems they face are probably those to do with natural reductions in food supply as a result of global warming. For example, there's been a decadal decline in Antarctic krill abundance, and that has almost certainly had knock-on effects on the terns. So far, their breeding populations are, seem to be stable, but with continuing krill declines, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Arctic terns are, are not unique in terms of being trans-hemispheric migrants. There are a few other seabirds that follow similar sorts of routes, although they don't tend to go as far south as the Arctic terns. But also these routes, interestingly enough, are those that the clipper ships used during the, the great trading days of the 19th century. I think it's, it's really interesting, isn't it, that these birds make use of the same winds that our um, old trading routes used to sail across the oceans. Um, although I have to say, it seems like an awful lot of effort to go to, flying all the way from the North Pole to the South Pole and back again every year. But uh, obviously, I guess it must make sense if you're an Arctic tern. Yeah, they are absolutely fantastic creatures. Now, for our sixth Christmas critter, we're going to be venturing out to the tropical coral reefs for my personal, one of my personal favourite species, which is the 
mantis shrimp. Now, these are like the kung fu masters of the ocean world, and they're found all around the world, both in tropical and subtropical seas. They range from only just a few centimetres, so a couple of inches long, up to around 30 centimetres, which is about 12 inches, and they can shoot out their front claws, which are either shaped like spears or clubs, which is why they earned the name mantis shrimps, because they look a little bit like praying mantises. And they can shoot those out at around 23 metres a second, with an acceleration of over 100,000 metres per second squared, which is equivalent to the speed of a speeding bullet. And they also have the most elaborate and complex eyes of any animal on the planet. So let's start with their claws. Different species use their claws in different ways. Some have these barbed spearing claws to jab out at soft prey like fish, and others have club-like claws that they use to break open harder prey like snails and crabs. These claws shoot out from the mantis shrimp so fast that they actually create little collapsing bubbles that make a pop like a small sonic boom, and they can even sometimes produce a tiny bit of light as the energy produced is so high. The shockwave created by the bubbles collapsing is actually enough to stun the prey, so even if they don't actually hit it with their claws, they can still get it afterwards. Not that they would be likely to miss their prey with their claws because of their incredible sense of vision. Like other arthropods, including other crustaceans like crabs and lobsters, as well as insects and spiders, mantis shrimps have compound eyes. These are made up of lots of tiny little eyes called omatidia, each with its own lens and light and colour sensing pigments. Now we have four different types of photoreceptor pigments in our eyes, one type in the rod cells that senses the brightness of light, and three types in the cones that detect different wavelengths of coloured light. Mantis shrimps have 16 different types of pigments. They can see infrared and ultraviolet light as well as polarised light. And the position of their eyes on movable stalks also means that they have accurate depth perception, obviously very useful for aiming your strikes at your prey. So although they're quite small mantis shrimps, you certainly wouldn't want to mess with them. I mean, another name for them is thumb splitters because they can give you quite a nasty injury if if you get them annoyed. (laughs) No, they are really just quite phenomenal creatures and I've seen them quite often when I've been diving and... uh, I have got the feeling that I'm being watched by these extraordinary creatures. You can see um, there's a line in the middle of their eyes, I think, um, and then you can sort of see them focusing on you. And, you, and I just, for a minute, just sit there wondering, what do I look like to them? Because, you know, clearly the whole world is a completely different sensory experience for them compared to what I can see, and it's just really quite wonderful. Are there really plenty more fish in the sea? Find out with Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com oceans. This is Naked Oceans and you're listening to a countdown of the 12 critters of Christmas. In a moment we'll find out about a festive fish that's causing trouble somewhere it shouldn't be. But first, have you ever wondered if it snows in the sea? Diatoms are a kind of uh, microscopic algae, so they're a bit like plants. They can photosynthesize, which uh, means they can use the energy in sunlight to fix carbon, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, into their food, into their carbohydrates and uh, and sugars. And they can, well, they grow in the surface of the ocean, but they can grow pretty much anywhere. They live in rivers and lakes and puddles, pretty much anywhere you look. They make their shells out of uh, silica or sort of glass-like substance, and their shells are really very beautiful very intricate uh, designs they can be pillbox shapes and needles or even stars so although they're really small diatoms actually when they grow together they grow in big clumps they produce this sticky substance that uh, makes them all stick together in big mats 
And uh, this means that when they die, they can sink really quickly. And uh, these big clumpy mats can fall out of the surface ocean to the sediments. And because they do this, they're sometimes known as marine snow. And because of this, uh, because they, they sink very quickly, they're really important for taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So when they photosynthesize and lock up all this carbon into their shells, when they sink, they can transport this carbon from the surface to the sediments and uh, there it can be locked away. We've already noticed, however, uh, changes in um, the different types of algae growing in different regions in response to climate change. Uh, so, for example, in the West Antarctic Peninsula, we're actually seeing in recent decades a change from populations dominated by large diatoms to those dominated by a different type of plankton called salps. And not only has this changed how carbon is uh, taken up in this area, but it's also had big knock-on effects for the ecology. So not only is this impacting organisms like fish and krill that live off diatoms, but also organisms higher up the food chain like penguins and seals. So I think that uh, although they're tiny organisms, diatoms are some of the most beautiful creatures in the sea. And they're also really important both for local ecology and for global climate. That was Kate Hendry from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in the US shining a spotlight on those beautiful and important diatoms. Well, from one elegant creature that you need a microscope to appreciate to another stunner that can easily be seen with the naked eye. My next critter has a slightly tenuous connection to the festive season, I must admit, but it's sometimes called the turkey fish. Um, It's also known as the firefish, scorpionfish, but it's probably most well known as the lionfish. Well, these beautiful, graceful denizens of coral reefs are quite easy to spot. They tend to be covered in red and white stripes, and they dress themselves in a costume of long white spines that stick out in all directions. And you should definitely steer clear of those because each spine is tipped with a dose of nasty poison. Although they don't tend to be deadly for people, they are extremely painful and uh, lionfish use their spines as a means of defence. Well, originally lionfish lived only in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, but around a decade ago, divers started spotting them a long way from home in the Caribbean, where it's thought they were accidentally, or maybe even deliberately, released from aquariums. And now they're spreading throughout the region, stirring up controversy and altering the balance of ecosystems as they go. Because the problem is that lionfish may look pretty, but they are also voracious predators. One study revealed that after five weeks, lionfish can munch their way through 80% of the native young fish on a Caribbean reef. And the big worry is that in the Caribbean, lionfish have escaped the natural checks and balances, those predators, parasites and diseases that in the Indo-Pacific prevent them from taking over entirely. So we really could be facing a lionfish plague. That sounds really worrying. I mean, is there anything being done to try and deal with this massive invasion? Well, yeah, it does seem really quite scary. I mean, they're lovely to look at, but it's not good that they're there. And lots of divers already going out and collecting lionfish by hand. Well, no, with spears and nets. Um, Don't touch them. That's not good. Um, And there's actually, they're setting up things like early response networks where if you spot a lionfish, you can report it and they'll they'll send in a SWAT team of lionfish disposers um, to come on the scene and get rid of it and and whisk it away. Um, And the other thing is people have started to work out that they're actually quite good to eat. So maybe turkey fish should be um, on the Christmas menu. Yeah, I've seen uh, lionfish when I went diving, and they're, they're, I mean, they're beautiful to look at, but quite scary. I definitely want to, wouldn't want to get too close to one. Well, sticking with animals that can give you a nasty sting, our next Christmas critters are a group of ocean drifters that pack quite a punch. My name is Jill Mapstone, and I'm a scientific associate at the Natural History Museum in London. And I work on some rather unusual animals there, 
which are called siphonophores. These are marine creatures which live mostly in the deep sea and often they're actually called string jellyfish or string jellies because they tend to look a bit like a string. So they have a number of swimming bells at one end and these all pump together to push the animal forward by jet propulsion in a certain direction and then behind that you have more stem with uh, serially reproduced mouths, each with a tentacle, and usually there are some sort of flotation structures called bracts, which look a little bit like um, leaves, and also the reproductive organs in there. So this part of the stem can actually go on for metres in some larger jellyfish. I think one of the largest ones ever found, siphonophore, was about 50 metres long. And um, I'm interested in them because uh, they are important predators in the sea. They eat a lot of fish, larvae, and things like that, which are, of course, important for humans. Um, But also they're quite remote and difficult to access. And if you can see them live from the submersible, then they look really beautiful. So now, would you know any siphonophores if you saw them? Well, there is one which you probably have heard of, but this is not actually typical at all of the group, and that is the Portuguese man of war, whose Latin name is Visalia. This is very unusual because it's got a big float, floats on the surface of the sea. Very few things can eat them, although actually turtles can, but they're pretty difficult to study because they're so venomous and um, don't really want to get um, entangled with one when you're swimming because they can have long tentacles that stretch underwater for some distance, and these are actually can give you a very nasty sting and leave scars on your body, and, and if you're actually rather ill before you get a sting, maybe, or predisposed to some problem, health problems, then you could actually be killed by one, although this very rarely happens. So that's the Portuguese man of war. Still, we don't really know how many species there are in the sea. At the moment, I think we think there's one, but there may be another one because um, off Australia you get a a smaller one called the blue bottle. Anyway, they're interesting animals, but the ones that I study are really more beautiful, I would say, and they live in deep water, so they're really rather mysterious. So actually, they are really the most fascinating group of animals. That was Jill Mapstone from the Natural History Museum introducing the siphonophores, including the Portuguese man of war and the blue bottle. And I actually saw some blue bottles washed up on a beach when I was living in Sydney in Australia. And they're actually a lot smaller than I expected. I could have fit, not that I would want to touch one, but if I had wanted to, it would have definitely easily fitted in the palm of my hand. But they are really beautiful creatures, although, as Jill said, not necessarily representative of the whole group. Yep, I got stung by a blue bottle when I was snorkelling um, off Rotnest in Western Australia. And it was just a tiny little piece of te- a tentacle that had broken off, but it really wasn't much fun. Out. You're listening to Naked Oceans. We're counting down the 12 critters of Christmas. So let's venture back into the deep sea now, where we're going to meet some weird relatives of sharks and find out that sometimes one set of sex organs just isn't enough. Here's critter number 10. My name is Matt Gollock. I am the Assistant Manager of the International Marine and Freshwater Conservation Programme at the Zoological Society of London. And the chimeras are probably what I would describe as the forgotten cousin of the shark and ray. Um, We know very, very little about um, chimeras in comparison to both the sharks and rays. Chimeras are very odd-looking creatures, um, and chimera in Greek mythology actually means a creature that's created from other bits of animals, um, which when you look at a chimera, you can actually sort of believe that. And while chimera is a sort of a group term for these fish, um, within that there's um, 
individual species that are known as rabbit fish, rat fish, elephant fish. So there's a range of different names for different chimera species. The thing we can sort of generally say about uh, chimeras is that they, they mainly live at depth, so anything down to about 2,500 metres. Um, as I mentioned, they're, they're related to the sharks and rays, and um, all three of these different groups of animals, the sharks, rays, and the chimeras, um, have skeletons that are made of cartilage rather than bone. And if I was sort of to describe an average chimera, um, I'd probably first say there's no such thing as an average chimera. But when you get to the head end, that's kind of where it gets really interesting because they, um, they often, um, sharks, rays, and chimeras, all use um, electrosense to detect um, their prey. And the chimeras have some very unusual um, modifications of their snout um, to aid this. Some of them have very, very long paddle-shaped ones. Um, <laughs> This fact, um, just I, I still sort of have trouble sort of imagining the, the mechanics of this, but the males actually have a retractable sex organ on their head. Um, and, um, yeah, they have um, traditional sex organs as well, but they seem to have this, this other one as well. And I, I, to my knowledge, I don't know if anyone's actually seen it in use, but um, it is something that sort of slightly boggles my mind. I guess... Um, Sort of my interest as part of the Zoological Society of London is obviously around conservation, um, and this is what the Edge Sharks um, project is is gearing up to to address. Um, and as I mentioned before, we know very little about chimera, and any species that we don't know much about is potentially vulnerable to activity, man's activities in the oceans. If we don't know what how what we're doing is affecting fish. Um, it, it's it's going to be quite difficult to to protect them. So, in reality, a lot of basic conservation action in relation to chimeras might be simply gathering more information on their behaviour and their distribution. Mm, yes, six organs on the head. That really is pretty weird. That was Matt Gollock from the Zoological Society of London introducing us to the forgotten cousins of sharks that get up to some rather strange things in the deep sea. Okay, well, sticking with the deep sea again, uh, one of my all-time favourite species in the whole ocean is a kind of deep-sea tube worm called Riftia. Now, they live at the deep-sea vents in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which can be up to several miles below the sea surface. They look a bit like giant lipsticks. They can grow up to three metres long, and they have this sort of hard white outer tube and this beautiful bright red plume sticking out. And they're actually an evolutionarily ancient lineage because there are examples in the fossil record dating back to at least the Cambrian, which is over 500 million years ago. Now, the thing that I think makes Riftia special is that it's got so many amazing adaptations to living in what we would think of as a really inhospitable environment down there at these hydrothermal vents. There's such high concentrations of toxic nitrites, hydrogen sulfides and really high heat levels. First of all, let's think about how they get their energy. I mean, down at this depth, there's no sunlight, so there's no photosynthesis, which is how most food chains elsewhere in the oceans begin, with photosynthesizing species like algae and phytoplankton using sunlight to make sugars. So how do Riftia survive? Well, they have a symbiotic relationship with a type of bacteria that can convert the chemicals spewing out of these black smokers like hydrogen sulfide into organic molecules that provide energy for the worms by a process called chemosynthesis. The worms then absorb these nutrients directly into their tissues, so technically they don't actually 
eat anything, which is actually quite an unusual thing for an animal not to eat. It just is able to absorb its nutrients, especially for something that size. The worms also have a high tolerance for concentrations of sulphides and nitrates that would be deadly to most other animals. The deep, rich red colour of their plumes comes from haemoglobin, which is the same sort of molecule that makes our blood red. But their haemoglobin is differently structured and it's able to withstand high levels of sulphide, still allowing it to carry oxygen around the worm's body. And they're also the fastest growing marine invertebrate. They can grow nearly two metres in less than two years. But because they live at such depth, there's not that much known about them. And it means that there's always more being discovered about them, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. It is really exciting. And it's, it's crazy to think we've actually only known about deep sea vents for about 30 years. And you just think, well, how much more are we going to discover about these extraordinary ecosystems? Well, that brings us to the 12th and final critter of Christmas. And how could I resist finishing with another group of great festive beasties, the Christmas tree worm? Well, these critters really do look like tiny one-inch Christmas trees. Um, and they've been one of my favourites for ages. I've often seen them as I've been uh, scuba diving and snorkelling on coral reefs. And you spot their lovely frilly crowns decorating boulders of live coral. And they're actually a type of polychaete worm called a serpulid. And the bit you see sticking out is actually just their spiral headgear, um, a pair of feathery appendages called radioles, which they use to sift food and oxygen from the water. The rest of their body stays safely hidden within a calcium carbonate tube inside the living coral, and then when they sense movement, perhaps a scuba diver coming a bit too close because they're just so enchanted by this lovely creature, they will flip inside the tube, pull in their radioles, and then shut it tight with another specially adapted radiole called an operculum. Now, there are two subspecies of Christmas tree worm, one from the Indo-Pacific and the other from the Atlantic and the Caribbean, and they come in all sorts of lovely, beautiful colour morphs. They can be blue, they can be red, orange, yellow, all sorts of pretty colours. But apparently the most common colour is white, so that's, I guess, appropriate enough for a snowy, seasonal critter. And as well as looking very pretty, um, one study has suggested that Christmas tree worms might play an important role um, by protecting living corals from a attacks by crown of thorn starfish there are those voracious predators that really can tuck in and, and have a huge appetite for live coral and um, but it seems that they don't like being tickled on their undersides and so um, a nice cluster of feathery christmas tree worms will keep them at bay and apparently christmas tree worms can live for up to 40 years which really isn't bad for a little worm so there you have it those were our 12 critters of christmas we really do hope you enjoyed them it remains for me to say a huge thank you to rob jennings james mclean Jill Mapstone, Richard Phillips, Kate Hendry and Matt Gollock. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back in the new year when we'll be delving into the impacts of fisheries and looking at what alternatives there might be to stripping the oceans bare. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at Naked Oceans or drop us an email. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. You'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. So from all of us here at Naked Oceans, have a very happy festive holiday and catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by the Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.